I'm really excited to announce that we're gonna have a five-part web-based series called From Stress to Success. These sessions are gonna have lots of discussion about these areas. And again, really practical things that when put together, create a great path towards not just surviving, but thriving in challenging times. The topics are managing burnout and emotional labor, thriving through long-term stress, protecting your sleep, creating spaces of vulnerability for yourself and your team, and finally, energy management. The conversation about mental health has never been more open than it is now, and we have an opportunity to go even further with that. I think back to my time as a therapist, and sometimes it felt like we had the secret combination that could really help people that really wasn't being broadcasted out to enough. So why don't we take this next step together? Please follow the link and I hope you'll join us. You have to accept that you are not infallible. There are people who are better than you. There are people who are worse than you that are just gonna be luckier than you are. Like there's all kinds of factors that are gonna go in that are completely out of your control. And sometimes you just have to burn the candle at both ends and see where this leads and be prepared also that whatever path you have set out for yourself is not what you're going to follow in the end because there's going to be opportunities that pop out that you don't expect. That was a clip from today's guest. Um, this is a cool episode. Uh, someone who, again, I've been aware of their body of work, both as uh, a musician, but also as someone in the professional world, uh, mutual friends, so I'm super psyched to have it on here. And also one of those things where it's like an industry that I'm super interested in and I always like talking to people from this industry, especially someone from a punk background. Arn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, uh, for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? That is not an easy question to answer. I'm Martin and I do lots of different things. I play music, I uh, own a couple businesses, I am uh, my, my primary day-to-day uh, -to -day job is, uh, is I'm a real estate broker. But yeah, it's probably quicker to answer what I don't do than what I do do. So you, know, you might notice I'm already laughing and smiling because since you've been in here, you've been totally hilarious so far. Um, oh, I'm also a comedian. <laughs> I, like, we have a lot of like, connections we've never met before, and that's kind of what I was laughing about because when you came in, I was like, it's one of those things where I was expecting to be like, oh, there's that guy. Like, of course, that's a guy, that guy I've been in a room with a million times. Um, but no, but at the same time, it's that like punk familiarity where you're around someone, you're like, oh, we're of the culture, I get it. It's always cool when you meet someone who has got like a, like a long story in punk and hardcore, but also has a lot of cool stuff going on professionally. And that's part of why I was so psyched that you wanted to, uh, to join, come on the show. Real estate, kind of an interesting thing. So for the uninitiated who don't know, what is a real estate broker? Like what are the specifics of it? I mean, essentially it's a, it's a real estate agent that has uh, one more certification. It allows me to operate a brokerage should I choose to, but I don't. So do you work on your own independently or do you work with other people? 
I have a team. I have a couple of people who uh, who work for me, and and we have a a real estate practice that uh, does both residential and commercial real estate, and. Uh, I'm involved in all aspects of uh, of the of the business, whether it's uh, helping somebody to acquire a, a house or a condo, or uh, I work with a number of not for profits as well that that try and we try and acquire multifamily properties away from private landlords and put them in public hands, and uh, all the way through to retail leasing and and that sort of thing. There's uh, there's not really any corner of real estate that uh, that I don't touch. When we think about real estate, I think the most basic thing people are like, oh, like buying, selling, buying, selling houses. Um, but it's a super complex and ultra interesting world. But also it's like kind of like a hot topic world too. Like it's like gets a little spicy. So how did you even get into it? Like what was the initial uh, entry point? I really fell ass backwards into it. I grew up in Toronto and for university, I, uh, I moved out to Vancouver. Um, bounced back and forth a couple times uh, after my first year. And when I came back, I, uh, I was looking to, to rent an apartment and somebody asked me what my budget was. And I mean, back then in the late 90s, you could get apartments for hundreds of dollars, not thousands. I was like 20 years old at the time. And I, again, long story, had a, fell ass backwards into a, into a government job. I didn't drink. I didn't, all I did was spend my money on records and going to shows. So I had a thousand dollars a month that I could spend on uh, on on rent. So it's like I'm going to rent myself a one bedroom apartment. My records are going to fit. I'm going to be able to listen to music, and I got a thousand bucks to spend. So the city is my oyster. And somebody just mentioned to me, it's like, well, for a thousand dollars a month, you could like afford a mortgage. I'm like, really? And uh, so there's uh, a neighborhood in Toronto called Kensington Market that uh, really cool downtown. Lots of shows and punk stuff happen around there, and and it was an area I was already looking in. I got connected with a real estate agent, uh, ended up looking at a couple places, and bought uh, an apartment in Kensington Market. And back when you could afford that sort of thing for for a thousand dollar budget, and uh, and didn't think much about real estate after that. And what what year was that? Two thousand two thousand one. So you got in super early. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And then anyway, I worked in a bunch of different industries, nothing related to, to real estate. And then uh, I was um, got a phone call from some strange guy I'd never heard of before who worked for who was thinking about joining a, a, a company I'd never heard of. He turned out to be a, uh, a fairly established real estate coach and successful agent back in his day. And uh, there was a company from the U.S. that was uh, that had expanded into Canada. It hadn't really worked out. Somehow through the grapevine, they'd heard from me. They were trying to headhunt me for the company. And uh, I was working for a media company at the time that was based in Finland. Like, basically, it was like an early version of social media. And, uh, and I was managing their Canadian operations and uh, had no interest in leaving. But this guy kept talking to me for about six months. They flew me down to Austin a bunch of times. And I got to meet all their senior leadership. And... Uh, Eventually, we worked it out, and I said, oh, what the hell? I, uh, I own real estate. I guess I, uh, I guess I can figure this out, too. So I, I had, a, uh, I had a, an executive role with this, with this company based in, based in Texas. Did that for four years. I got to know a lot of the big players in, uh, in North American real estate, U.S. and Canadian. And uh, for years, I've always wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and something of my own. Like I, I, I'd had a, a fairly successful 
uh, career, uh, even at this company, I was second in charge, and we had thousands of agents across the, the country at the time. But ultimately, I was working 100-hour weeks. Every time something went wrong, it was my phone that rang, and I was still at the beck and call of, uh, of my employer without a great deal of security. And I said, you know what? If these guys can run their own real estate businesses, even if I'm, even if I'm a tenth as good as they are, I'll probably be happier doing that than I am having this corporate job. And, uh, and so I left, uh, left my role, got my license, and, uh, and have been doing this now for, as of today, 12 years, 11, 12 years, something like that. Going back in your career path, you'd said like early on, you kind of fell ass backwards into a government job. Yep. So what was that job? After my first year of university, I, uh, I wasn't sure that that was the right path for me. I always thought it was a little strange that in your teenage years, you're supposed to decide and know what you're going to do for the rest of your life and start pursuing that. And again, if you have that passion, great. But I had lots of passions. I had music, I had art, I had writing, I had political science. And I was very interested in computers early on and interested in art. And I always had like this notion that, and I mean, this is primitive days of, of computers, but uh, that programming was like this like ultimate art where anything is possible within a computer. And I was so fascinated by it when I, uh, in ninth grade, I went to a school that had like, a, seemed to have a serious, for the time, computer science program. I was so excited. That was the only thing I was excited about for that school. But I, uh, we had our first computer class and I, uh, and I talked to the teacher. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm really keen to be here. And this is not my approach to teachers ordinarily, especially not at that time. And, uh, and he's like, oh, great. I'm happy to, to have you here. I'm like, so when, when do we start programming? Because I thought they had like this like robotic hand that you could like programming. And he's like, oh, don't worry about that, kid. You'll deal with that when you get to 11th grade. For now, we're going to work on word processing. I'm like, okay, I know how to, I know how to compose a letter in, uh, in whatever, the, whatever the program was at the time. I'm like, I'd really like to learn to program. He's like, and he just wouldn't give me the time of day. So the end of that school day, I went back to talk to him, asked him if I could come in after school and maybe he could like give me some lessons and, he's, and he just brushed me off. So I snuck into his office, stole the, uh, the book on touring and the floppy disk and took it home and figured out how to, how to program in Turing and Pascal. And anyway, so I taught myself a few languages and just would like make like primitive games for me and my friends. And, uh, and uh, so computer science was something that I was interested in pursuing because I felt like that kind of brought everything together. Um, but even though I maybe have a natural aptitude to math, I, uh, I didn't do calculus or, or anything. And, and as I discovered when I went to university, that was a requirement of uh, getting into a computer science program at, uh, at UBC where I went. So that wasn't an option for me. So I settled on, okay, I'll just do English, political science. But I mean, I was one of these like uh, typical 90s punk rock kids that was like listening to propaganda Gandhi. So I'd read like five of Noam Chomsky's books. And so as soon as I went into my political science 101, I started educating everybody on what's going on in East Timor and uh, 
So this was a question about my work Dude, history, and I'm just giving you I, my no, school I, history. I want to hear it. This okay, yeah. So I, w I had I made friends with that uh, with other people at school who were older and were attending more sophisticated classes. So I preferred to attend their classes instead of mine. Obviously, it doesn't really help your academic record when you're attending somebody else's class. Uh, and I spent most of my time at the radio station anyway. I hosted radio shows and started putting on shows out in Vancouver. So long story short, by the time I'd wrapped up my first year and probably attended 20% of the classes I was supposed to, I got my letter saying, yeah, based on your academic record, we don't need to see you back here next year. So I had to figure out what I was going to do. Am I going to go somewhere else? Am I going to start working? And I, I thought about it long and hard, and I don't think I had made a decision, but I decided I'm not ready to pursue an academic path because, again, there's still a torn in so many different directions. So I set a bar for myself of what I expect my the value of my labor is going to be, and I'm not going to work for anything less than, I don't know, whatever the minimum wage was at the time, maybe 4 or $5, and I was like, I'm not going to work for less than 10 and so I was sitting, I remember I was sitting on the bus going to my mom's house and, uh, and there was a newspaper open on the classified section. I, I look at it and, uh, and there was this ad for a placement agency that said $12 an hour. I'm like, okay, that's, that sounds about right. So I called them up the next day and said, hey, I want to come in for an interview. And so I just put on the, the only suit I had, went in there not knowing what to expect. But this was like we're, we're in the late 90s at this point, like knowing how to use Excel was like sophisticated. And obviously my background with like basic programming was helpful. Um, and I almost immediately got a job in the financial district working in one of the one of the towers. But anyway, I had this job where in 1997 or 98, they gave me a laptop. Laptops were pretty special back then. They were feeding me coffee and donuts and juice and I had I was sitting in an office up in the clouds and I was just like wow I think I've I think I figured something out here and obviously it wasn't the most exciting job in the world but for somebody who really had no qualification it was great and then I just quickly realized you know what I mean I can just say I have a BA and uh, or that I attended UBC and nobody really seems to to look any deeper than that and so I started focusing on what are the things that are interesting to me, and then so I ended up working as a an e-commerce analyst in the late '90s when like nobody even knew what e-commerce was. Um, I uh, I ended and then I got tired of that, so I uh, went to work for a toy company, completely different line of work. That. Uh, I did for, for a few months. And basically, I just started to realize what I needed to do is trade up my titles and grow my breadth of experience. And I had this government job offered to me through, through a placement agency, um, just sort of an administrative job. And that's when I, I was, it was kind of a, a soulless job. Again, a nice office, everything was, uh, was, was cushy. There was nothing to, to complain about, but I just, it wasn't challenging in any way. It was very comfortable. A friend of mine in Vancouver, had, uh, had his relationship had fallen apart. He needed some help and I was tired of my job. So I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna quit, move out to Vancouver. So I did, moved in with him, and again, immediately I, was, I went to a placement agency, uh, told him about my experience. 
there was a uh, it was a gaming company that had hired me. They they were processing all the applications that they had from 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 artists, and and they needed to come up with a system to catalog everything that came in. And so over the course of a week, I just built them a like a front end database that would allow them to track it. And then I had these computer programmers coming in, looking at it, and just ooing and aahing like how did you build this? Like we were trying to build it ourselves and we ended up outsourcing it to you. And, I'm, and I was laughing to myself. I'm like, I barely even know what I'm doing. The only reason I know how to program anything is because I stole the book from my uh, grade nine computer science teacher. And anyway, so I just sort of caught on to, as I was at the same time catching on to the, the power of, of DIY through punk. And, and I realized that there were parallels all over the world. And I mean, I'm, I'm in my late teens, or very early 20s at this point. So I'm also just realizing that all the grown-ups out there don't know what they're doing either. So I did that and uh, ended up moving back to Toronto after a few months. The, that job with the government, they, again, wanted me to come back so badly that they offered me a raise if I would move back. So I'm like, sure, okay, well, I, uh, I, I didn't really enjoy all the rain in Vancouver. So I, uh, I was there for the whole summer for the, the, the best summers in the world and then and then flew back to Toronto, and uh, and that's when I ended up buying uh, that apartment in Kensington Market, and uh, and then fast forward a bunch of years, uh, I was working for that media company. Uh, yeah, I was in Toronto, but it, the company was based in Finland, so I got to travel back and forth. Did lots of record shopping through my my Finnish punk and hardcore collection is very impressive. I uh, ended up being headhunted uh, for this uh, corporate role and for a real estate company, even though I didn't have much experience in that industry except for owning real estate and uh, got to learn the, uh, the ins and outs of that business from a very high level. Um, in fact, one of the last things I did before I left that company uh, or left that role was, uh, was helping to launch their commercial division. So I was very familiar with commercial real estate from that point. I've been doing that ever since. Uh, dude, first, awesome story. Um, second, some of it stands out to me. Um, that idea that like um, there's there's no like right or wrong in a lot of the stuff like kind of traditional paths and like traditional seats of like knowledge and power and all these things is like relatively meaningless that someone with out a degree uh, who's totally self-taught who just had the willingness to put themselves there and the hustle to make it happen can go out and do a lot of cool stuff that's like meaningful it helps them financially it lives them a certain kind of quality of life I love that and I love that a lot of it just came from who you are, but also that punk rock ethos of just like DIY, like figure it out. Around real estate specifically, what was the drive to make that your thing? Because you'd said like, I wanted to get into something that's more entrepreneurial that was more your own. Why that? I have had the good fortune of working in lots of different industries for lots of different companies with very different styles and approaches. And one of the things that always hit me and has stayed with me ever since is just when you're working for somebody else, very often you're a lot of the things that you do, especially if you're the type of person that like just can't help but always give it your all, which is my personality, um, your, your efforts are not always rewarded, let alone recognized. And, uh, and so, and again, it's not that I, I felt unappreciated, but I just, I felt that I brought something to the table that 
that I could do more with if I was in charge. And, uh, and, uh, and so I had, uh, I mean, I've had options over the years and, 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 and considered doing things with friends, but nothing ever really got off the ground. And uh, anyway, this was, this was just, again, because I, had, I, I, I came at this from an incredibly fortunate position in that I had access to all these successful, high-level people that were doing this all over, at that point, North America, that I could reach out to for advice if I needed it. So I, I was, I think I was in a, in a safe enough place that I was, it was still scary to, to give up. It's not like I had, I had great savings or anything that I could sit back on. This was definitely one of those trial by fire decisions where if this doesn't work out, like, like this is going to wipe me out most likely, but you kind of need that kind of incentive to, to, uh, to, to do it right, I think, and, uh, or at least I do. I wasn't sure that it was going to work. I had no idea. I, I remember having a conversation with somebody. Uh, I can't remember what line of work they were in, but I told them I'm thinking about leaving my job and, and going out on my own. But I, and I told them I've done everything, or not everything, but I've done a lot of things. But the one thing I've never done is sales. And the guy was, it was on the phone, and the guy was laughing. He's like, doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a janitor, what a real estate agent, everybody's in sales. Everything is sales. So he's like, you've been in sales the whole time. Like just, this, this, is, a, this, is, a, this is a great move for you, just do it. And uh, that was it. But ultimately the, the, the underlying motivation was that I wanted to do something, I wanted to start something of my own where uh, where the success or failure of the business depended on me and not on anybody else. I didn't have to answer to anyone else and, and I could do things in my, in my own way. Because, I mean, real estate is also one of those industries that stereotypes about real estate exist for a reason. Mm -hmm. And those stereotypes don't <laughs> reflect the person that I am. I'm not attracted to to the lifestyle that you see on these uh, on these real estate TV shows and all that and that's uh, not what I was after but it's also I saw that that's not what it had to be mm -hmm. and uh, I wasn't sure that it was going to work I didn't because I I am not a despite that I'm on a uh, podcast right now I'm not a self-promoting person in any way like it's not that I, there's nothing that I'm ashamed of but I also just it's not my comfort zone to tell the world about how great I am. Like, it's just like, I, I'm confident and I, I know that I, that I, what I represent and that's good enough for me. I don't need to, uh, to, I don't feel the need to showboat. And I was worried that that was going to be one of the requirements of being successful in real estate. And like a decade into this, I can, I can confident, I can't tell everyone else how to do it, but it has worked for me without having to uh, put billboards of myself around the city. My, I do have signs. Reluctantly, I have signs. And they say my name, but they do not have my face on them. My business cards do not have my face on them. Like all those cliches of real estate. Mm. I think, as I take a deep breath, I think I've managed to avoid and proven that you can do this without being that guy. Yeah. Uh, so... Because uh, I want to get to the actual industry in a few minutes. And I, I like what you said, stereotypes exist about the industry for a reason. But also a lot of, a lot of industries. Like, right. you know, I, I'm in a fortunate position where I get to work across a really broad amount of industries at, like, um, uh, at various levels. And 
you know, I'll meet those people where it's like, oh yeah, I've seen you on TV. Like, right. you're, you're that person, you've been a character in a movie. They, they're rare, but their impact is huge mm -hmm. in, in both a positive in some ways, but in a negative way where it's like, people know those stereotypes because they make such a big impact often in a, in a negative way, but they certainly don't count for like the vast majority of people who right. work in any industry. And there's all sorts of people who work in an industry. And real estate very specifically, I feel has kind of um, gotten an increase, become an increasingly challenging topic for some that are based on like how people have done the business, but also of course the economy and, and where people who want to get into real estate find themselves now, even from a renting position. Right. Um, but before we get to that, uh, that piece, um, there's two things that stand out to me. The first is you seem like a person who's been ultimately very willing to bet on yourself. Is that something that was natural for you? Like, yeah, I, I'll, I'm just going to do this thing, or is that something you learned over time? I think it's something that I learned over time, and I think it's something that is born out of necessity, not out of like some like crazy confidence. It's not that like in any aspect of my life, whether it's music or or anything else, it's not like I started this because oh, I'm I'm I got something that nobody else has, and I'm I'm going to make it. It's like I'm going to try this. I'm going to do my best, and there's so many factors that influence whether this is going to succeed or not. And I think it's it's not about for me, anyway, it's not about a like this like yearning for success. It's about a willingness to fail. It's like, okay, I'm going to do this, and this might be the most catastrophic failure of my life. I might be the laughing stock of my friends, but let's let's roll the dice and see see what happens. I'm willing to do the work. Um, so I think that ultimately that's that's where where it comes from, and and uh, and especially when you're when you're younger and starting out and don't have a lot to lose, like what's the worst that's gonna happen? Like, go back to scratch and, and start again. It, but it, it's interesting you say that because like when I said that, you, you're kinda, your first thing was like, well, it's not from like a crazy ego space. I don't think I'm the greatest guy in the world. So sometimes people bet on themselves because they, like, they can't see the real reflection in the mirror. They've got these like self-inflated ideas of themselves, either from ego or just they're not good at gauging. Uh, what they can bring but other times people are are very hesitant to to bet on themselves like people who really should like mm -hmm. people who have something they can totally add the reason i bring it up here is because that willingness to fail let's start with the with the place and i think it's important to acknowledge there's a certain amount of privilege that some people have i can't speak to your life story but i know that like the times where i've like bet on myself is like for most cases except for when i got older it's like if i totally failed I wouldn't lose everything. Like right. I wouldn't end up in a terribly compromised situation. There's people I could rely on and people I could go to. So I, I, when I speak about betting on myself, I always have to keep that in mind. I assume the same as uh, could be said for you. Yes and no. I uh, obviously there's varying degrees of of this, but uh, I mean certainly I would risk a, a full reset. I think that uh, that is that is an inarguable fact, no matter yeah. what uh, what challenges I've had to overcome over the years. Yeah. The reason I want to put that at the ground level is like, I think the idea, I'm like a big, big, big believer in, in uh, believing yourself. Like, and I don't mean in the corny way of like, follow your passions. Like, yes, like, yes, do that, but also do it reasonably so that you can build a like a, a productive lifestyle for yourself, right. productive and healthy. But like, I do believe in betting yourself, whether that's like, shooting for that next job in someone else's company or in, in some big company or starting your own business, whatever it is. The thing that I, I always want to encourage people to do is like not settle. Right. And settling doesn't mean you're sitting in some like totally meaningless 
shitty job that you hate and you don't make much money. I know people who make a shit ton of money and are fucking miserable and they've settled in that. Mm -hmm. The idea of betting on yourself is like really taking the steps to like figure out what is gonna make me the most productive and happy in my life and take, and take those steps. So if we start at the ground level of like you and I and, and many people kind of have a certain amount of privilege to go out and start their own businesses. Um, but there's also a certain level of like, well, I'm also totally willing to eat shit and fail. And that's the interesting part of your story, man, because at any of these parts, you could have totally eat shit, oh, yeah. eaten shit and failed. And I think in some cases you probably had Oh, some. I definitely did, yeah. Of the, the falling and eating shit and avoiding it, like what did you learn from that that kind of propelled you into where you are now? I think that uh, that there is no limit to the amount of shit you can eat, and uh, and you just have to get back up. Like it's like I mean, there's so many cliches about uh, about uh, about failing your way to to success, but ultimately it's that simple. Like it's just like you have to accept that you are not infallible. There are people who are better than you. There are people who are worse than you that are just gonna be luckier than you are. Like there's all kinds of factors that are gonna go in that are completely out of your control. And sometimes you just have to burn the candle at both ends and see where this leads and be prepared also that whatever path you have set out for yourself is not what you're going to follow in the end because there's gonna be opportunities that pop out that you don't expect. Like I never expected when I was working for that that Finnish media company that a real estate company would would call me one day on the phone. Like, how did they even get my number? How do they know who I am? But it happened. And if I had been more closed off about it, I wouldn't be here right now. Maybe I'd be doing something even bigger and better, but maybe I wouldn't. So, and that's one of those things too, like creatively, professionally, in so many ways, like I've just like, you just have to keep an open mind and accept you ha only have limited control over what's going to happen in this uh, in this life and and there's going to be you're, there's going to be ups there's going to be downs and then there's just going to be these unexpected moments that you have to keep your eyes open for and catch them as because the, they're not going to stick around for very long and can I share two moments in my career that were game changing that that Please. relate um, so I'd been uh, a therapist for a number of years doing addiction and mental health work out in Vancouver. And I had worked three different places, kind of like gone up the ladder in, in terms of like what I could offer as a therapist. And I was in a position where I'd just gone through a divorce. I was kind of like thinking what's next in my life. I was like not really playing um, a ton of music at the time. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Uh, what am I going to do next? I was talking to my friend Thomas, who lives out in Richmond. He's really really wonderful guy he talked about this idea of just like trying to be more open to things and he was like he had this what he called his like summer of saying yes he was like if people call me to ask me to do something i'm just going to say yes always because he'd found himself saying no to things or being like well maybe who's going or what's this going to be he like he was always trying to parcel things out he's like fuck it i just want to say yes to things and I got like real interested in that idea because like, you know, coming, coming up in punk and hardcore, you can kind of come from this like skeptical, kind of almost like culture of critiquing everything, yep. you know, saying no to too many things. Mm -hmm. So I got off the phone with Thomas and I was really thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start saying yes to stuff for the next while and see what happens. Because like I was unhappy in my career. I love the work I did as a therapist, but I just hated, I hated my boss and the whole, like the whole system I was working in. And I was just you know, unhappy, had gone through this divorce, just not feeling good about my life. So two days later, I was walking my dog. I have a wiener dog named Blue. And Blue and I are walking down the street, and I'm waiting at a light to cross the street, and this couple comes up. 
I'm in East Vancouver. And uh, the couple starts like fawning over my dog, chatting, blah, blah, blah. And I start talking to this couple and the, the husband of the couple is just like asking me all these like very personal questions, like oddly personal questions. And we're chatting and I'm just like, usually I would have just brushed this guy off and got out. But I was like, you know, I'll give this guy two minutes. And we're chatting and chatting. He goes, what do you do professionally? I'm like, oh, I'm a therapist. And he's like, oh, I run a coaching company. Um, would you be interested in interviewing? And I was like, yes. So I did a little bit of research. I went and met with the guy, did some interviews. Three weeks later, I'm working at this guy's consulting firm. And that was how I got into the industry that I'm in now. So I worked in that company for about five and a half years. And what you said is like, I don't have an ability to join something and do a shitty job. Like I'm like all in working super hard. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm pleasant either. Um, if I see something that I think is bullshit, I'm going to talk about it. Again, I come from like kind of culture of critique. Right. And that culture of critique is always based on making things better. But there's three things. Sometimes I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I think I do. Second, sometimes I do know what I'm talking about, but I only have a part of the picture. And then third time is like, I totally know what I'm talking about, but the way I'm talking about it isn't the way to go. So the owner of that company and I were just like, poof, poof, poof. and at one point I was like very close to being a partner, like a steps away, basically like a, um, just a signature away. And we had this really tough conversation and it was a series of multiple conversations. We had this really tough conversation. Two weeks later, I'm fired. Totally unexpected, expecting it, like not expecting it at all. And it was coming at, I expected it based off the conversation, but it wasn't what I expected as the next step of my right. life. And I was in a really, really tough spot in my life. Personally, I'd been going through this a really, really difficult situation. And I already felt like I had the carpet pulled out from underneath me and then, poof, you know, the floorboards got pulled out. And I would say from a career point of view, it was the second most important thing that ever happened because I was put in a position where it's like, okay, so I was, a therapist for a long time. I know how to work with people. Now I've worked in this world where I learned sales. I learned all these things. And I'm fucking chronic pointing out the, pro the problems in everyone else's process. So if I think I'm so fucking smart, I better start my own company. Right. And I started my own company and that's how Cadence happened. And it was super hard work uh, to get it going, but it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done professionally is starting my own business, building it up, hiring staff, helping them have like a good quality of life just from like paying them equitably and fairly. But without first being willing to say yes to something, but the second without being willing to eat complete shit, but also be like, okay, I'll deal with this. Um, there's no cadence, there's no put this podcast, any of these things. And the way I'd relate it to your story is like being willing to bet on myself, but also being willing to totally eat shit, totally eat shit and get back up. I mean, that's the, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And uh, there might be a third career in your, uh, or a fourth career or 10th career. And uh, I mean, when I have, whenever I talk to young people who are, uh, who are starting out, like whether they're going to school or starting their work life, I always just try, because the, there's so much pressure in so many cases. And I was just like, just relax, like just do this. If it works out and you like it, it might lead to something better or something. You might discover something about yourself and it's just, I mean, I think that's, and I think that like the, the dark moments, like especially when you really get invested into something and you've put so much of yourself into it and then it falls apart on you, as awful as that feels, once you've done it a couple times and it's happened to you, it's not that you're desensitized to it, you just start to appreciate, okay, this, I don't see how this is gonna make things better for me, but I just like, I've, it's happened to me a couple times, I just have to have faith 
in myself and I will figure this out and as bad as it feels now, we'll turn this into something better and I'll learn from it. And uh, I feel like I've never stopped learning those lessons and I mean, hopefully the uh, the rug and the floorboards and the and the subfloor and everything else don't come out from under me again because I, I don't need uh, don't need any more roller coasters but <laughs> I uh, I think that that's like such a such an important thing to uh, to uh, to to know and to experience and and a lot of times when I'm speaking to to people who are going through these rough periods like that's I feel like that's such an important place to steer them to and just like you got to like look outside of yourself right now and know how dark this moment is but you have no idea what this is going to lead to and the and the strength and wisdom you're going to get from having gone through this and uh, again that's uh, the small comfort often at the time but afterwards it can make a big difference huge 100% I, I, I like we said it's like steer don't steer away from that in that darkness like kind of steer into it with with the least like kind of like um corny version of this it's like you got to go through this to get to the good stuff yeah and, and to be able to build on it so the second thing that stood out to me about your career like the first was that willingness to bet on yourself but the second is like if as you tell me your story it feels like like uh, tightly controlled chaos as you're kind of going up that that yeah, and I mean, obviously, I'm giving you the uh, the uh, the Cliff Notes version of the of the story, and uh, and it just makes it sound like it's like some Mario game where I'm hopping from one cloud to the other and just rising. Like, no, there's, I mean, I mean, that job when I was the when I got the job as a financial analyst. Like, I mean, how I even got that job? I saw an ad for it. I was like, eh, I think I could do this, but I don't know what a financial analyst is. So the day before my interview, I went to the bookstore and went into their like their uh the like the it was the chapters whatever down at, by the movie theater here on richmond street and like looked at books on what does a financial analyst actually do because i had no idea and i'm like okay i think i can figure this out and like this is the software that you use so i i bought three books that i brought in my backpack to work and when i couldn't figure out what i was doing i would just go to the bathroom with my books and like read about it Anyway, I did. I didn't know what i was doing full disclosure i think at this point the uh the statute of limitations has passed <laughs> I knew what the outcome was that they wanted. I didn't know how to get there, but I was just analyzing data. So I would just like pump out numbers that like, I know that's what they want. They were so happy with me. I remember the owner of the company came over to me and he's just like this like big cavalier showboating guy. And he's like, you're the young genius. Everyone's talking like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I knew that my timeline was short because they're going to figure out eventually that I don't know what I'm doing, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, that one certainly ended with, with uh, I don't remember whether I quit or was fired, but it was one or the other. They were going to happen. If I quit, it, I was going to be fired like the next day. And I just, I knew I had to get out of there because yeah. this was, I do not belong here. But I had that experience. It was, a, I did not figure out that job. Do not hire me as a financial analyst. Um, but, uh, but the, uh, but it was an industry that I learned about. And then I just took that experience and whatever the next job was, it might've been the, the Finnish media company. And I was like, okay, well, I know I've studied e-commerce and I have a background, I have a creative background. So I, uh, I just parlayed those two together and ended up doing something completely different. And even though the over the, the end result of that experience wasn't a new career in financial analysis for the rest of my life. It was just something I did for six months. It did lead to something else exciting and uh, obviously not the most tragic moment of my life, but um, what you were saying about the, uh, the, he called it organized chaos or yeah, like it's, 
I think that, I mean, one of the things, and I have not done a great deal of therapy or anything, but it's 2023 when we're recording this. Everybody's listened to podcasts and uh, and uh, and and is uh, has some amateur expertise in this stuff. I mean, one of the things that I've come to understand is that people who had difficult childhoods and stuff seem to thrive in that kind of chaos, and that is certainly true of my story. And I and I recognize that in my own life. And I've got two kids, and it's like something that I really try and be conscious of, and 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 uh, and 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 be reflective, and try and not create that chaos in in my in my children's lives, but. Yeah, I I just I really thrive in a in a in an uncontrolled chaotic circumstance and I can usually find my zen in there and uh, and 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 thrive in it for for better or for worse. And uh, I'm sure it's not great for my blood pressure and uh, and uh, and certainly I've been a chronic bad sleeper my entire life. Um but uh but yeah, I I do I do I do thrive in that. Uh, in I, I, I manage to find organize my organize myself in chaos. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and what you said, I truly believe. Um, people who have had challenging early life experiences, like family of origin stuff, or a lot of bullying when they're young, um, often are able to turn that into an asset. Not always, uh, right? Uh, but it can become a real asset, and that asset can quickly turn toxic as you become an adult. Sounds like you've you've learned or figured out how to manage that for yourself. Absolutely. I mean, like, I mean, I think it's a, it's a common story with a lot of people. Like I, uh, like I, I grew up in a, in a chaotic household with, with, uh, with parents who went through challenging experiences. And I just, and this isn't even just a, a parental experience. I've witnessed it growing up in adults of, of all walks that it's like, you can grow up to become what you came from or you can grow up to overcome it and at the end of the day you are responsible for your for your actions and uh, um i remember having a conversation with somebody uh that i'm pretty close with um who was complaining to me about uh, this like rage that they have inside of them that they can't can't keep bottled up and it's been the source of breakdowns and relationships in their in their life and uh, and i just explained to her i'm like you're not the only, I know you feel like this is something unique. I have the same rage. Like I might be calm in front of you right now, but I mean, thankfully I have, maybe it's because I have outlets and punk and whatever else, but I just find that that like anger that I have in me, that offense that I can so easily take at, at the actions of others, I can channel into something positive or I can just let it out the way that I saw it let out when I was a kid and just, alienate and hurt people around me and that that's so unproductive and and just will never lead to to a to a good conclusion whereas if you find a way to channel that that anger into something creative something professional whatever those two i think can overlap not just your life but the people around you benefit from it so much and i think that that is like what has been one of the keys for me and it's like it's what drives me to be so productive, I guess, is because I just, I can't sit still. Like I've always got to be doing something. If I'm not doing something, I'm thinking about something. Like it's just, maybe I'm hyperactive, I don't know. But uh, along with learning from, from mistakes and failures, I think also channeling 
your emotional self is such a such an important part of because i mean whatever you do whether it is something in the corporate world whether it's something in the creative world or somewhere in between how you, how you interact with people is going to influence so much your success your quality of life and the people who want to be around you the people who are drawn to you and the people who are who are who are repelled by you the person that you are and i just think that uh, that that is Aside from from being able to learn from your own mistakes, being able to uh, learn from learn how to channel your own emotions is a is an absolutely critical piece of uh, of of working with others and building whatever it is that you aspire to or dream to build. Oh yeah, man, I, I agree so much. Um, let's uh, let's shift over to to real estate specifically. Um, so we talked about it a little bit, and I was kind of alluding. It's like. Uh, become kind of a touchy industry to, to talk about yeah. for all sorts of reasons. Um, so I want to start gentle because like I'm, I, uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, my, uh, my partner and I own a house and um, uh, we live in a multi-generational multi-generation, house. So we live, my mom lives with us. Uh, we were able to buy a house together, my mom and I. So my mom lives with us. We have one of our daughters with us. So we're in a really uh, very fortunate situation, but sometimes it feels like the, age group that you and I are in, we might be the last age group that that's within striking distance. Yeah, I think nobody knows the answer, uh, but there's a lot of reasons why the opportunity of home ownership is out of reach for, for a lot of people. And it's sad to see the, um, the growing gap between the, uh, the, the haves and the have nots. And I worry sometimes that there's uh, a country like Canada that had such a strong middle class as I was growing up, that feels like it's starting to erode, not just on a, obviously on an economic level, but just in terms of the quality of life where the balance between work and life is just so out of whack for, for the vast majority of people, whether they choose to be industrious go-getters or they just want to get by, like it's just, the cost of living has uh, has 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 really feels out of control. Um, it, it, challenging question. So take whatever direction you want. How much is the industry responsible for creating a pathway to home ownership for for generations to come? I don't know. That's a that's a question that. Uh, requires some pondering. I, uh, I don't know. I, um, I don't know how much control the industry has. Like, I think that that's sort of, that's maybe part of the challenge is that everything is so compartmentalized. Like the, obviously, and depends on who you classify as part of the real estate industry, like the mortgage financing industry, is that part of it? Is the, are banks part of the, the real estate industry? But I think that, uh, I think the, the deeper you go, you find flaws all over the place. Um, and, uh, and I don't rightly know what the, what the answer is, but I mean, one of the great fortunes I have in my life, like, especially through the, through the band is that I get to travel and see other places. And I, and I mean, the, the, the place that I love to bring up, uh, in the Western world is, uh, is Denmark, Copenhagen. I, uh, my, my wife is, is from Norway, um, and she's lived in Canada for, uh, for, for more than 15 years with me, but um, she'd never been to 
even though she grew up in Norway, she'd never been to, to Copenhagen. I remember the first time I went there on tour was uh, the early 2000s. And we were just there for one, one day and we played a show uh, at this youth center, like totally run down, it was disgusting toilets I've ever smelt in my life. But the next morning I got up early and our drummer and I went, uh, went for a walk. We sat at a cafe just eating Danish pastries and drinking coffee. And I was just looking at the, it was a sunny, beautiful summer day. Everybody was riding by us on bicycles and everybody was smiling. And I was just like, Eric, do you notice how happy everybody seems to be here? Like in a way that I'd never experienced anywhere else. And then over the years, I'd gotten to go back mostly to play shows. And it's just like, I always had that same experience. It's just like, there's just this like sense of contentment here and, and, and just like the general smiles on people's faces. And as I became a parent and just like saw how people like the, the care that their children had over there. And I like my circle of friends in that part of the world grew and I grew as an adult and started to understand things uh, a little more, more deeply. I, uh, I just came to realize like there is a, a uh, like a, a system of socialism over there that there is a basic quality of life. There is uh, a, a protection. There, there's a, there really seems to be at all levels of government and industry a priority for people and making sure that there is a basic quality of life that everybody enjoys. And I'm not suggesting that nobody falls through the cracks. Of course they do, nothing's perfect. It's still a country of millions of people and I'm sure there's, there's horrific stories there as well. But coming from a place like Toronto where you just, I feel more and more you see so many segments of our society where people just seem overlooked, ignored, or they're placated with, with easy answers from, 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 from government or wherever. And I just, and I, I, I'm not suggesting that this is, that, 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 that uh, we're heading to a Mad Max world or anything, but I just, I think that there is a, a huge disparity in, uh, in, in how our societies are organized. And I think that maybe in, and I can say this for North America at large, that maybe we have kind of lost our direction a little bit. And I think that real estate is a reflection of that, that there is the, like the inability, like it's like, and being a homeowner is not the be all and end all of, 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 of anybody's life. It's not like, it's like you could go the rest of your life and never own a, own a house or an apartment and you'd be just fine. But it's gotta be housing itself is critically important. Having a sense of security that you're not one month away from living on the street, that is critically important. The, the insecurity and stress and agony that that brings to people and to families is devastating. And I think that that is the problem that, that needs, to be, needs to be solved. And so whether housing is, is provided or, or is owned is, is, is less critical in my mind is that sense of, of security. Yeah, I, I want to dig on it, in on this because you hit on a bunch of stuff that I think is super important. So, like when I said, when I said the industry, you're like, well, what's the industry? Beautiful, right? So it's like, is it is it uh, uh, the people who provide the mortgages? Is it the banks? Is it the realtors? Like, who is it? And like, let's go down to if I buy a house and then I sell that house, I want to make more money than I just right. made on that house. I think that's a very reasonable thing for anyone who wants to do because it's they view it as an investment, setting them up for the next thing or to leave to their children. So by nature, real estate, owning a, owning a place 
where you can take your money, invest into it wisely, and set up a future, I think is a very wonderful, amazing thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And also, not owning a home, I think traditionally it's been totally fine. Be a renter. Of course, now rent is becoming impossible. Mm -hmm. So can someone not own a home for the rest of their lives and be fine? Yes, given the idea that rent stays stable enough and, and keeps up with, uh, with all the other things. Something, though, that, that you're hitting on that I think is like, this is it, man. It's like, I don't think it's up to the real estate industry to solve this thing. Because, like, how does that happen? Because a homeowner is going to want to make more money on their home than last time. But maybe it's up to all of the adjacent industries, and maybe it's up to all of the industries to assure quality of life. So we're going back to Copenhagen, like that quality of life and the assuring quality of life. This doesn't sound like a government thing because I think a government is incapable of doing that. I think it's got to be a government industry thing of people saying the, the demand of industry and the financial implications on the, on the individual have outstripped the ability of our system to provide security or any of these things. So what I'm talking about is like far more, I guess like I'm trending into like utopian uh, space, but like the idea that real estate kind of has this like nasty can sometimes people can talk about it in a nasty way where I think it's like a wonderful, wonderful thing like to, to, for a home ownership or to get into a good rental situation that's rent controlled or any of these things. It's great. It's just that the system, the way it's set up right now is fucking people and isn't going to stop fucking people. And that's where I think industry could come in and, and do some stuff. So like with the advent of remote uh, work, here's one of the great things from COVID is it caused all these industries to realize, oh, people don't really need to come into the office. Great. I think from an industry point of view, it's like we could create situations where a job that you post in Vancouver could be like, oh, this is like a global job. We don't care where you are. It could allow people to live in, in places that are far more, have a much more uh, better quality of life. Your dollar will go further in terms of real estate. I think if we start looking at things from less of like local economies to more of like national economies and where can people live, but we still pay them as if they're working in Vancouver or working in Toronto, but you could live anywhere in, in Canada or basically in the world, I think that's a way where we can start playing with that quality of life uh, in, a, in a modern space. I think that real estate and that industry, I don't think people are like bagging on real estate agents, but like kind of the real estate industry, it's like, well, we've all been frozen out. But I don't think that's because of the industry. I think it's because of the standard of life that we've, uh, we've created this nightmare scenario in North America. I'll stop there, just your, whatever your thoughts are. Yeah, I I, uh, I I don't disagree with you. I just think that like there's, I think that there there's challenges with obviously we live in a in a globalized world where uh, I think that we're coming to a place where eventually the the places that are relatively depressed are going to catch on that uh, that hey this is this is the value of of labor elsewhere this is the value of real estate elsewhere why is it lower here and i and, and you see it in a lot of places especially uh, post covid where people who have a vancouver or toronto income move to a place where the cost of living is significantly lower and end up driving up the cost of living 
the, or the expat community starts to drive up the, the cost of living so that it no longer becomes affordable for the people who lived there originally, and that creates its own whole host of problems. So I hate to, to sound ignorant. I don't honestly know what the what the answer is. Like the uh, the Star Trek utopia is what I'd love to uh, to uh, to leapfrog to, but I uh, I don't know that things won't get worse before we get there. So dude, what a great point you just made about that. Like I hadn't even considered that. So again, that's like that space where it's like, oh, here's the simple answer, and you're like, well, here's a different angle. So I think that's a really because that is actually a phenomenon that is happening Absolutely, right now. Yeah. I was literally just reading about that the other day, but I hadn't made the made the connection. So there's no easy answer, but you're in an industry that has like that kind of a start in the back in, in the backdrop. So how do you work within with clients, knowing all of that noise in the right. background, all those challenges? How do you work with clients? Again, because I work in in all different aspects of real estate, from residential through commercial, and uh, and I'll work with large organizations to 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 like mom and pop uh, home buyers or sellers. I've had the the great fortune of working in the not for profit space, which is very bizarre uh, in a real estate context. Um, in, to the point where even real estate agents and brokers are confused when I bring it up. There was a there was a not for profit developer that I was uh, connected with uh, close to ten years ago, um, who I've worked with ever since, and through them gotten to work with a number of different organizations, including uh, community land trusts that are basically a, a not for profit uh, group that get together to acquire real estate and hold it in in community hands and try and ensure that for the rest of time there'll be affordable rents and and it, this works on a small scale these are organizations that have 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 loose connection to to government depend on in, in many cases on 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 subsidy and support um, and but the idea is catching on and but it's it's a flash in the pan it's not enough to solve the the woes of a city of six million people but it does make a difference and it's moving in the right direction and I've Again, been very fortunate to be able to to be involved with them, and fortunate to be in a position where these are these are difficult deals to put together. Like in most cases, like a simple explanation is there's a low-rise apartment building that uh, that a private investor is trying to sell at a profit for all the reasons that you already described, and we're trying to compete with other investors who have deeper pockets, easier access to capital, who are also trying to buy these buildings and trying to appeal to these, these uh, sellers to, to work with us. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't work out because it's just easier for them to, to work with somebody else. But every once in a while, the magic happens and it's a lot of work and it often takes six, eight, 12 months to, to put it together. But it's a, it's a, it's a small win, but it's a, it's a win. And, uh, and at this point, there's, there's a handful of these buildings that are now in the hands of these organizations and we happen to have a more progressive municipal government at the moment, which will hopefully lead to, to more of this sort of acquisition happening. So I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm uh, I guess that's, that, that's, maybe that's the balance that I strike, that I'm able to take some of, some of my time and my energy and, and resources and put it towards supporting these organizations that uh, in a lot of cases, uh, aren't taken as seriously by this industry for, just because it's so confusing to to real estate investors and and brokers to understand what where they're coming from and how this can be successful but 
I think that because of my background and like I when I when I first came to Canada, we lived in 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 Toronto community housing and like some of the happiest years of my earliest life was living in low income housing surrounded by families from all different walks of life living in Chinatown and like just like it was so cool and 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 had such a lasting impact on me. So I think that I think I understand the the value and importance of of the work of these types of organizations. And again, even though I work in an industry that seems so far away from that, maybe even in opposition with that, I have found a way to bring the two together and try and uh, try and support uh, these very grassroots. The, all these organizations are very grassroots. Like some of them have gotten more complicated or complex. They've been around for decades now. And so they've grown, they have like high level boards and everything. But ultimately these are grassroots organizations and initiatives that just saw a problem and realized government wasn't doing anything about it and and have been doing what they can and and volunteer their time to uh, to to keep it going and and I was lucky enough to be connected with them and 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 be one of the people that's been able to help a few of them grow their portfolio of uh, of of affordable housing projects. So we're heading in towards the end of our of our interview. I'm going to ask you three rapidly more difficult questions. Oh God! And then at the end, I'll give you space for anything that you want to share, any, anything you want to add in. Um, so can we go into something real estate specific about people who are trying to get into the housing market? Um, so young professional, let's say early 20s. Uh, I literally just had this happen one of the, uh, the other day with one of our daughters. Um, they were saying, like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to own a house. So we're talking to someone who's like 20. And our response, my partner and I were like, oh, no, like, of course, of course you will. Like, you know, like we kind of laid out this this whole thing. But if you were to say for like young professionals coming up really like in the renter market, um, any advice for how they can start thinking about like either stealing themselves for uh, uh, the rental market um, and how that might increase in the future or setting themselves up to be able to make that first purchase? There's no easy answer. It's uh, and it's harder than it ever was. So anybody who's coming from a, 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 a place of privilege like us who happened to have purchased years before when it was a little bit easier and it was harder for us than it was for our parents and I think it's going to continue to get harder and harder but I think that it it is still possible obviously the the frugality is a is a is a key because ultimately it comes down to to money one of the challenges in cities like Toronto where as opposed to larger cities in the US for example where like sure you can't afford to live to buy a place in Manhattan but there's probably an outer borough somewhere that's going to be a pain in the ass to commute to and from, but there's some place where you reach that ring of affordability where you can buy. That doesn't exist in in Toronto, and I don't think it exists in Vancouver either, where it's expensive in the inner city, maybe gets slightly less expensive as you move out, but then as soon as you hit a specific suburb that that a that a particular group has invested in being, the prices start coming up again. So it's just it's a challenge, and and. You have to accept that no matter what, there's going to be compromises that you have to strike. There is that that uh, the 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 American or Canadian dream of the of the detached house and the white picket fence and the driveway and garage may not immediately be possible. This may be a process that takes many steps. May take owning three or four properties and climbing the ladder to get there. 
ultimately there's a bottom barrier to uh, how much money you need to be able to put down. That's a, that's a number that you can figure out and whether that's obviously frugality, saving, borrowing. If you're fortunate enough to have family who can support you in that process, there's, there's a lot of different avenues that you can go down, speaking with mortgage professionals, figuring out and help, having them help you draft a plan of what it's going to take. And then more than likely, if you can get to that first stage, that first place you buy is going to be a place that is far from the ideal of what you're looking for, but maybe you can do work to it or it's in an area that, that, that will appreciate and will allow you at some point to, uh, to, to take that step up. I've also over the years had many clients who have uh, gotten together and purchased property together, like your example of multi-generational. I, I, I know people who are friends who've, who've banded together just the, the same way that so many of us when we were renting or, or like punk houses all over the world where people just get together and rent a place together. You can also buy a place together. So there's lots of ways to get creative. Again, requires cooperation and, and, and drafting a plan in advance and being prepared for what happens if one person decides they want out and that sort of thing. There's lots of complexities to this, but there are creative ways of doing it. But the bottom line, ultimately, not sugarcoating, no bullshit here. There's, it's harder than it ever was. And I don't see it getting easier anytime soon. So it does require it requires good fortune. It requires creativity. It requires tenacity, frugality, and and that's that's how you do it. And 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 most everyone that I know that's younger and a first time buyer, if they haven't had the support of family, it has been through sacrifice and and doing things differently than they had envisioned originally. But I think that ultimately, if this is something that's a priority for you, you just need to need to ask ask questions, talk to people, and just like anything in a, whether it's a career or an artistic endeavor, whatever it is, it all boils down to the same stuff. If there's something you're passionate about, talk to people about it. They'll turn you on to people who've done it before and, and turn you on to different ways of doing things. And maybe in all of that, you will find a path. And, uh, but it's, it's hard work. Well, it just you don't speak. fall ass backwards and do it anymore. <laughs> that's that's unfortunately sure. Well, that the thing you said about like compromises, you know, like if you'd asked me when I was thirty, am I gonna have am I gonna have my mom live in the same house with me? I was like, no way, that's not gonna happen. I got to tell you that. Um, so I scaled up. We I bought a, a duplex and then another, and later on another duplex and kind of went yeah. up like that. And then uh, I was in a that my family's in a tough situation where my dad um, got, became quite ill and uh, we had to create a situation for my mom. And I will tell you that buying a house with my mom, my mom has her own, her own little floor and, right. and we have our own floor, has been the most wonderful experience of my life. And I would have missed out on that level of being super close with my mom and having her in the same place and having her daughter grow up around her grandmother. I would have missed out had I not been in it. Basically, I needed to compromise to make it work. And I'm so grateful and so thankful. But it wasn't like my idea of like, I'm going to own a house right. and my mom's going to live there. Um, it's been so cool. So that idea of compromise, compromise certainly, but compromise can also live to things where you're like, I didn't realize how much I would love this. Totally. Um, it's tough. And, and I like how you're saying like, I'm not going to candy coat this. It is tough and it's not going to get easier. And it doesn't mean that if that's important to you and it's not important to everyone, but if it's important to you, 
that you shouldn't be able to do it, especially with this increasingly challenging rental market. Mm -hmm. All right, you ready for your second question? I'm ready. Okay, so you know I've asked you some tough questions about real estate, but there's cool, like so much cool stuff about real estate. So for for you, like what's some of the stuff like a joy about working in real estate? Like what's something that like you really like about it? I mean, this is this is a bit of a cliched answer, but it's absolutely true. I and I am. I get to know people really intimately, really quickly. And uh, like there's people who refer to me as like their their kids god realtor because they're like like their little kids got to know me as we were going through the 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 house hunt process and like obviously you get to know people's challenges from a family perspective, from a financial perspective, you end up going through like sickness and all kinds of like life-changing experiences and just simply because I am tied in some ways to their home I get involved in those in those conversations a lot of times and I am and I am like I am a people person but I'm also naturally a very like shy person and I'm not the type of person I don't have like I'm one of those people I have I have like close friends not a large web of, of acquaintances, but through this line of work and like through music, obviously that naturally has to become part of my life. I do have a huge web of acquaintances, even though that's not my natural inclination. Um, but I think that because I am one of these people who just likes to get close with people one-on-one, -on -one, that getting so intimate with, with people and, and families through this process and being able to Again, I, I don't want to give more value to myself than I deserve, but I am able to help them through a lot of that, through life's ups and downs, through this work that I do, and uh, and and getting to have those those close, forged relationships and that trust is uh, is something that I find really really rewarding, and uh, and uh, and I'm grateful to be able to play that role in uh, in a handful of people's lives around us. Oh yeah, uh, we love our realtor. Our realtor is a guy named Paul Fraser and he in, out of Vancouver and he's the best. He's like a member of the family. Awesome. Yeah, he's he's been wonderful for us. All right, final question, man. Um, and then anything you wanna talk about. So we talked about almost nothing to do with punk and your band and in a way I kind of appreciate that. It was cool, we were, we were able to get into some like real, just like life stuff. Um, but coming back to the, the idea of punk, so usually, People are like, oh, here are the best bands from Toronto or the best bands from Canada or whatever. But coming up here um, and coming up in this scene and spending most of your kind of formative years musically here, what's one band that people should know about but really never never got the attention that they that they that they deserve? One band to you or to you and your friends that you're like, oh, that band. Mm. I mean, again, this is like, what is the industry? Like, I mean, I uh Oh, there's so many. I mean, obviously, come from this world of uh, of uh, the more obscure, the 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 better. So it's like part of me doesn't want people to know about it because that's what makes it uh, so cool. Because there's only 300 copies of that single, and uh, it's pricey enough. I don't need the the world to find out about it. But um, band from Toronto that uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the the band that uh, that uh, that uh, from a hardcore perspective, started it all. I 
suppose would have to be Youth, 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 and I mean Brian Taylor, the singer of that band, who who wrote the lyrics and uh, and uh, uh, went on to uh, I mean put out so put out and produce so many important records, and uh, so I think is. Like we could dedicate an entire episode to all the bands that people should check out from here that they've probably not heard of, but I think that that is uh, probably a, a, a the the best example of a of a band that I mean is by no means unknown, uh, but by uh, doesn't have a huge audience and uh, and I think is as relevant politically now as it was then um, uh, was a. a a project that uh, so much effort and energy and care and art was put into. Um, and uh, I am still convinced, and I, I don't know why I haven't had this conversation with Brian, uh, I am convinced that uh, the singer of Celtic Frost was absolutely inspired by hearing the Youth, Youth, Youth Sin EP. And that's why I, I just, every time I put on uh, Celtic Frost, I hear Brian Taylor. So anyway, I, that's Youth, Youth, Youth. That's, that's who you should check out. I mean, unexpected left turn with Celtic Frost in there, which I am a fan of. So I appreciate that. Uh, dude, this has been an amazing conversation. Anything you want to add in before we close off? I mean, I came in here with, this is the first podcast I've ever done. I, uh, I had no expectations. I have no agendas. I have nothing to promote here. Like I, I think I, I told you, I can't remember if it was on air or off. I am not a self promoter. I, uh, I, I like my reputation to speak for itself. I, uh, I don't, I mean, from a real estate perspective, one of the things that shocks because I, I don't really do a lot of training, but I do the only when my brokerage sometimes asks me to host training, and I'm like, look, I will host something for new agents. They'll do like an ask me anything, and the first thing I always tell them is like, can't tell you why my business has worked out the way that it has. I'm really glad that that it has, and I've been able to work with lots of wonderful people, but. It is not because I advertise or showboat. I've never, never. Never, I, I just, I think that in everything that I do, I just, I like to do something. I like to give it my all. And if people recognize it for, for something that they appreciate or value, that means the world to me. And I feel like it's come organically and I feel like it's genuine and they mean it. And so I, uh, I don't think I have anything to, to add or, or promote. I'm, thank you for, for having me and, uh, and uh, deeming me worthy to listen to for, uh, for two hours if you haven't fallen asleep yet out there in podcast world. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, this was a cool interview for a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons. So thank you for sharing. Uh, thanks for being a person in your industry who's out there doing like good stuff for people. And also, thanks for all the stuff you've done musically. I know it's been a huge impact to so many people. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. All right, everyone. Uh, that's it. We'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. Yeah.